This is Guns and Butter. About it. We live on a planet where we're not allowed to know how things work. Who's Mr. Global? How does he run things? Why does he behave the way? He, why are we sitting here talking about this? This should all be known. Do you know what I mean? We should learn this in grade school. So to me, you know, if you look at the history that we've been taught to believe, if you look at the, the myths that we've been taught to believe, you know, we're living in mice land. And we need to leave Miceland and look at things from Mr. Global's point of view, look at things from the Universal Divine's point of view, and say, well, wait a minute, let's shift this whole thing out. Um, because I, one of my favorite videos I saw was a, of a former NASA employee who says, you know, it's, it's my children and grandchildren's right and destiny to travel the stars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show... Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 3. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dillon Reed & Company, Incorporated, Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, President of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Catherine Austin Fitz, welcome. Bonnie, it's always a pleasure to be here. We are doing Unpacking Mr. Global Part 3. In part one and two, uh, you spoke about how the money had moved out of the country, uh-huh. the United States, uh-huh. and now I know you're looking at how it may, in fact, be moving back in. Correct. What do you think is going on? Well, let me give you some historical perspective. In 1989, I was sitting in my office. I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, and the phone rang, and it was a uh, fellow that I'd known from Wall Street who was, had been a partner at Solomon Brothers and had come down to run the Resolution Trust Corporation. He was the executive director of the RTC. And we were all working on starting the auctions of the assets that the government had taken over. You know, we had a similar situation where you had the real estate market crash. The government ended up with a huge amount of assets, and we were going to start auctioning the assets off. Now, you're talking about the SNL crisis. The SNL. Of- well... That's no. what they used to call it. I call it black budget fraud, but... <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So but we're back at 89, We're 90. back in 89, 90, and the government's in the process of taking over $500 billion of assets, which it's going to auction and sell off. So this fellow said to me, oh my God, we have a problem. Nick doesn't want to provide financing with the auctions, referring to Secretary Nick Brady, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time. He said, you have to come over here and help me persuade Alan and Nick to do financing. That's Alan Greenspan. So I go over to the cash room at Treasury, and there's a big meeting, and it's Alan Greenspan and Nick Brady and and this fellow from the RTC. And I listened to them discuss the issue, which was, when we sell billion dollars of auctions, will the government agree to provide financing to the bidders? Now, this was important because if you didn't offer financing, then the 
then the private financial institutions wouldn't offer financing, which means the proceeds on the bids would be much lower. You'd get a much lower price. It was this, imagine if we woke up tomorrow and nobody in America could get a mortgage. They had to finance the house. You know, their down payment had to be 100% of the purchase price. Housing prices would drop a lot, it's fair to say. And um, and sure enough, I was listening to the debate and I realized, oh my, oh my word, they don't want to provide financing because they want the prices to be lower. And then I realized all these people, the insiders had gotten out at the top, you know, at $10, say if a property was worth a dollar, they got out at $10 and now they're going to come back in and buy at 10 cents on the dollar. And I realized, oh my God, this is a game. So I've been waiting since the bailout since 2008 to see who was going to come back in and buy in cheap because it was going to be the same process. Well, now, hold it, Catherine. I want to make something really clear. You're saying that back then, during the SNL crisis, financing wasn't going to be provided to people in order to buy up properties. The government, what I realized sitting there was that Alan and Nick didn't want to provide government financing because they wanted to see the auctions happen at cheaper prices. That was my intuition. Now, what happened was the way the debate came out at that time was, in fact, a decision was made to provide financing. The government, as far as I can remember, you know, only provided it a little bit or never at all. The private market stepped in and provided it. But that decision, and I think it was the the RTC head who sort of shamed everybody into doing it, it did mean that the taxpayers came out much better than they would have otherwise. But you could see the pressure was on from the private side to not provide financing so that they could get cheaper prices. You mean because if people couldn't buy up the properties, then the price would drop. Is that what you're saying? If, if less people could afford to bid, right. then the prices would be lower and those people would be advantaged. They could buy more for less. Right. So the insiders had gotten out at the top and the insiders wanted to come in cheap. And you could see the game. Okay. So so the question was, if you look at what happened, we we used fraud, mortgage fraud and, and government securities fraud to sell fraudulent paper all around the world. And that garnered, I mean, literally trillions of dollars. If you go to my blog at Solari.com, I have an article called Financial Coup d'Etat, and I call it a financial coup d'Etat. We issued fraudulent paper, and then the government and the Fed started buying back all the fraudulent paper with the bailouts. And as you could see, there was discussion early on in Washington, let's have more auctions just like we did in 1989. And a decision was made, no, let's not have more auctions. And I think the reason was um, you had so much fraud and so much criminal liability that it was too dangerous to auction this paper off. And instead, a decision was made to essentially make the banks and the investors or some investors whole, but stockpile the paper. Right. And so the question in my mind is, how can the market clear, you know, because the auctions did help the market clear, how can the market clear, how can the market mark to market so that the money can come back in and buy cheap? And now what we've seen, we had the bailouts, and then we had QE1, QE2, QE3. And now what Ben Bernanke has said is he's going to clear the market. And the way he's going to clear the market is by having the Fed simply buy $40 billion a month until it's all the fraud is out. 
Now, I suspect he's saying he's going to buy mortgage mortgage securities. I suspect what he's going to do is he's also going to put enough money into buying the derivatives layered on top of it. But it's extraordinary because if you look at the numbers so far of what the what the Treasury and the Fed has lent or given, it's $27 trillion. My guess is that with the national uh, emergencies and disasters, you've had a covert QE3 into FHA and the other federal mortgage funds for even more. And now he's talking about doing $40 billion a month essentially until it's over. You know, he says until infinity. Um, in fact, he's, he's tied it to unemployment. What we know is that technology is going to be driving unemployment up steadily. So if you look at literally what he said and took it verbatim, and I don't necessarily mean that I do, you know, he could print to infinity. So it really is not just QE3, but QE infinity. And what, what you're talking about is by tying it to employment, he's created the conditions he needs to literally to sop up any fraudulent paper left in, you know, in Fannie and Freddie and the whole institutional investors all around the world. Now, what's very interesting about this is how much of that money in an election year is going to be flowed back through to the homeowner. So if, if you take a large bank out of their, basically their liability for the paper and you buy it back into the Fed, then the question is, are you going to let the servicer share some of that with the homeowner. So one of the messages of what Ben Bernanke did on and the Fed did on Wednesday to every person who's sitting on a distressed home is there may be a new opportunity for a workout. Um, or you may want to hold on because the value of your property has more chance of going up than not. Now, the price to us of all of this, of course, is that the currency is being debased. So where we're holding, you know, bank deposits in dollars or fixed income assets in dollars or different mutual funds or other securities in, in dollars, it puts tremendous pressure on the purchasing power of that, of those deposits. So Ben also said he's going to keep interest rates down for 2015. So if you're a retired person and you have all your savings in bank CDs, you're absolutely going to get clobbered because you're not getting any yield, but the purchasing power on your on your monies continue to drop. Yes, exactly. And also, if he's talking about unemployment and tying it to uh, employment, employment doesn't look like it's going up anytime soon. So that sort of helps him go to infinity with the quantitative easing, right? right. Well, here's what's interesting. If they, if, if they do use this mechanism to clear the market the way they did in 1990 with auctions, and they do start to bring some of the money back in, and we should talk about the other places the money's gone, but they do start to bring uh, some of the money back in, there's going to be very significant... Um, job opportunities and employment opportunities and entrepreneurial opportunities in the areas that are growing. And you literally are seeing, Bonnie, the same thing happen in places that you're seeing in the equity markets. And that is we have an industrial economy that's dying, but we have a new economy which is being, you know, birthed. And the reality is if you're in the economy that's dying, it feels like the end of the world. And if your economy that's, you know, being birthed, you feel like, you know, it, things are going gangbusters. So we're seeing this bifurcation and we're seeing it in places and we're seeing it in the equity markets and the financial markets. And so there's going to be tremendous opportunity in, in the worlds that are being born. 
And for for those of us who are working in the worlds that are dying, we need to pick our head up and say, wait a minute, you know, how do I transition from here to here? Because if you look at the smart money for the last 20 years, that's all the smart money's been doing. It's been sucking money out of the world that's dying, shifting it into the world that's being born, and sort of keeping everybody asleep in the world that's dying with a with a debt bubble. Now, what I was trying to do in the 90s was say, hey, you know, pay attention, we need to shift. And what I was encouraging was encouraging government to help you know, lead that shift and help the middle class make the shift successfully. What they decided to do was to leave the middle class behind. So it's funny, in the 90s, um, there was a very popular book uh, about the rapture called Left Behind. And it was, I think, eight or nine. I mean, it's many, many books. And um, great controversy on the East and the West Coast. You know, everybody thought, this is nuts. Why are people reading this book? Well, it's funny. My stepmother gave me the first one, and of course, then I had to read the rest. You can do it on audiobooks, and I was driving around the country. What it was was a metaphor for the fact that our leadership was leaving us behind. And if everybody in the East and West Coast had sat down and read it and looked more deeply at what is this phenomena, they would have discovered a very important message, which is you need to pay attention because you're being left behind. So, so, so they have repositioned themselves in their money. And I think what's very interesting is if you look, um, if you go back, so, so in 2004, I came to California and I gave a speech called Navigate the Falling Dollar and said, okay, you know, here's the shift. We need to shift. And all those speeches are up on the internet. You can access them. You can find them through our website. But each time what I was talking about is this shift. And now the shift is accelerating dramatically. And because of the bailouts, you know, they've basically shifted the money. And so the critical thing for every person, every family is, okay, it is what it is. How do I shift? And one of the most important things um, you can do to shift is, number one, see where the opportunity is, but two, not get sucked into the tricks. Because if you look at the disinformation that's going to be coming our way over the next one to two years, it's extraordinary. And one of the things, you know, I want to talk about today is the fiscal cliff. Because <laughs> one of the great lies we're all going to hear is there is no money. You know, we have to cut the budget, blah, 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 blah. You know, if there's any politics I want to protect people from getting sucked into, it's, it's the politics of the fiscal cliff. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Catherine, now you talked about the world that is dying and the world that is being born. Could you describe the world that's dying? What's going away? Sure. What's going away is desktop computing, and what's going away is the old manufacturing model. And um, when, when the World Trade Organization was created and GATT was created, essentially the industrial uh, manufacturing got moved abroad because labor was cheaper. And because the people who moved it could make a lot of money, you know, shifting. Um, but what's happening now is, is, is technology, the technology of manufacturing is changing again. And so, um, and desktop computing is pretty much changing everything. So let me give you an example. Um, five years ago, the average American spent, say, two to three hours on a desktop computer, and the internet could access them three hours a day. 
going mobile. Now the desktop computing is moving to a mobile device, and we're going into a world where at some point, you know, we've shifted from a desktop computer to an iPad or a Kindle. We're going into a world where everything, you know, basically your desktop can be on your mobile device, and you'll be able to go into a house and stick it in a dock and do everything from watch a movie to, you know, to hook it into a monitor and that's your computer. Now that's a very different world because what it means is the internet is going to be able to reach you 24/7. So instead of you being online for 3 hours, now you're online, you know, 24 minus how many hours you sleep. But then we go to a world called ambient intelligence. So, have you ever heard the expression ambient intelligence? No. Huh? Okay. Well, it's it it's a world that has both wonderful attributes to it and I find other attributes absolutely terrifying. But you go to a world where um, literally you can access the Internet through your walls, through that we could, we could be sitting here, you know, if the desk was made with corn and glass, we could be sitting here and we could take our, our mobile device, you know, put a file into the desk and start to manipulate it. And, you know, you and I could build a picture of the world we wanted to live in as we're talking on the radio. But in that kind of world, um, automobiles can drive themselves and communicate with other automobiles in the highway. Okay. So, so you're talking about a very networked world. Okay. And, and also a world that's very invasive in terms of privacy. So we're, we're going to a transparent where literally everything is transparent, whether we like it or not. So, so, so part of that is, is that kind of um, networked world. And, you know, for many of us who grew up when the internet first started, there's the world of the internet and then there's our material world, but the two are now going to get integrated and it's going to change the way we relate to each other. So the speed at which I can communicate or shop globally everywhere in the world very easily is, is now going to be possible. Okay. So let me give you an example of of some of the other opportunities. Um, have you ever seen a 3D printer? No, I haven't. Have you ever heard of a 3D printing? No. Okay. So a 3D printer, imagine we had two contraptions, and in one you put a wrench. Okay, you hit a button, and the second one prints out a new wrench exactly like the first one using composite materials. Okay, so you don't need to imagine going down to the hardware store and instead of buying a wrench that they need to manufacture someplace in inventory, they just manufacture it right there. Okay, have you heard of the maker movement? No. Okay, there's a great movement exploding out of it. It came out of Sebastopol in San Francisco called the maker movement of people who just make their own stuff. And in fact, we're starting, your, there's a new business in this area I haven't visited yet called Tech Shop where you can go in and for a fee, a monthly membership fee, you can use all these amazing tools, you know. So manufacturing is going to come, it's just like the steam engine came down to a Duracell battery we're going to take manufacturing tools down to a very small footprint so that literally a bunch of people in a neighborhood could, could at some point get together and they need stuff, they just manufacture it themselves and they know how to. <laughs> well, that would be great. Huh? There's, we, did, um, uh, we did a great, Dale Daugherty has started the maker movement. He's got a magazine called Make that O'Reilly Publishing um, created and it's they're doing they're called maker fairs f-a-i-r-e like the old time middle ages so they have maker fairs and they're literally exploding all around the country and all over the world we just had a great 
interview with um, him on uh, the Solari Report because on one hand, you know, these technologies can reduce employment, but they can also dramatically improve the economics of doing it yourself or organizing locally to do it yourself. So, you know, there, there, I mean, there's negatives and, and there's positives in them. Let me go to a couple of others. The, the 3D printer, believe it or not, is not only occurring in terms of making tools or manufactured goods. It's being used now to make, uh, believe it or not, human organs. So, for example, my uncle used to be a transplant surgeon, and one of the biggest problems was people would wait for an organ. You had to wait for somebody who fit your profile to die. Now you can just make a new one out of your own cells in a 3D printer, believe it or not. And when I tell people this, they say, oh, no, that's too impossible. And it was funny because last year when I was out working here, um, I went back to the friends I was staying with, and they had a, a health TV pro. I don't watch TV, so they had a TV program on. And sure enough, in the TV program, somebody was making a, a new kidney, I think, for a patient with a 3D printer. And I said, well, see, it must be true because it's on TV. Because as you know, in America, fact is fiction and fiction is fact. So, Well, that's true. So much is presaged in, in movies and television. And then these events happen. And wow, everybody's been sort of programmed that this is coming. <laughs> right. Well, but if you do a search for human, um, for healthcare or human organs and 3D printing, you can find a whole series of universities working on these things. So it's it's an example. There, there was one other example I wanted to mention of... Um, uh, oh, robotics. Now, this is the question. This gets back to the question of Ben Bernanke, an employee. If you look at what's happening with robotics, there are so many things that humans are doing now that robotics could replace. It's quite extraordinary. In fact, <laughs> you and I will appreciate this because there was one article in Wired Magazine, I just put it up in the blog, saying that in 15 years, um, computers will be writing all the news stories. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I'm sure they'll be doing it with the slant of the person who paid for the programming. And, um, uh, you know, but it's quite extraordinary. I had um, I was in Switzerland for a conference last year, and I sat down at a table, and an activist said to me, uh, we started to talk about what we were doing, and I said, now what are you doing? And he said, oh, well, I just got a grant from the Office of Naval Intelligence. And I said, really? He said, yes. He said, I'm working in California and they're very concerned. He said they're very concerned. What I'm helping them with is they believe they're going to need 400,000 robotics engineers in the United States alone, or the United States is going to need 400,000 robotics engineers within 10 years. And they want to try and encourage kids in minority neighborhoods to become robotics engineers because there's going to be so much of an explosion of this. And at the same time, it's going to put so many people out of employment. Now, an increase in 10 years of one particular kind of engineer in that amount shows you that there's an economy that's really growing. And then I guess the implications of all of this are both positive and negative. The, the good thing about technology is it's out of control. The bad thing about it is it's out of control. <laughs> and, and there are because if you look at the, – the funny thing is – um, if you look at the technology, so for example, Google has a video, I, forget, I think it's a day of Google Glass or something like that, but it, it starts off with the, the, our hero in the video wearing glasses and he can see the, his screen in his glass and everywhere he goes, they know where he is and with um, 
you know, GIS software and global positioning, they can feed him information. Oh, you're going by the store. They happen to have a sale on something you like, you know. And all of the data is in the cloud, which means the cl- – do you know what the cloud is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it means the cloud has 100% 24-7 information on you. And, um, you know, if that had happened to me when I was litigating with the Department of Justice, I'm sure I'd be dead right now. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, but it's, it's incredibly invasive. You know, you really are living in the Truman Show. Then there's also the question of the dangers inherent, the biological dangers inherent in the telecommunications industry. Yes. Uh, And so unless there were some sort of, uh, well, you're talking about technological advances. Maybe they could make advances where this stuff wasn't so harmful, but we're all getting blasted with all sorts of right. stuff. Right. So if and it's not just the the new technology. If you look at the chemtrails and what's being sprayed, and it, and you look at all the different kinds of environmental pollution, the environmental pollution is increasing dramatically, and it's very very dangerous, and it's hard to get useful and good information. One of the biggest problems I have when I work with my clients is they don't understand you cannot have financial security unless you have good health. The number one reason for financial problems is a deterioration in health. But the other thing is you can't manage your assets and your life unless your mind is clear. So it is absolutely important as environmental pollution increases that we learn how to take countermeasures. You know, there's so many different ways, particularly in the alternative health world, that you can build your immune system and lower your toxicity, but you need to know to do it, and you need to take the time to learn. And I can't tell you how many clients have said to me, oh, well, that's too expensive. <laughs> no, it's, you know, you've whatever you can do to, to strengthen your immune system and lower your toxicity level, you have to do. And the other thing very relevant to what's going on in California during the election is you can't eat not food. In other words, we now have an entire industry of people who grow and deliver something that's not food, and people think it's food, and they eat it, and it's killing them. And and so if there's any one thing we all need to do to kind of make this shift is find and create ways of getting fresh, real food and real water, because we are what we eat. And without that, we're not going to make it. And without that, we can't keep the small farmers in business. Maybe this would be a good time for me to ask you about the Weston Price organization. Now, what is that? I love them. (laughs) I'm a Weston Pricey. I'm a member of the Weston Price. Weston Price was a dentist um, who earlier in in the first part of the 20th century went around the world and researched who's healthy and why. And one of the things he concluded is that is that one of the sort of drivers of good health, in addition to good nutrition, is getting enough high-quality animal fat. And he did a series of different studies. Um, uh, one of my favorite is with a guy named Pottinger. Have you ever heard about Pottinger's cats? Yeah. You've mentioned it, but yes, go ahead and explain that. Pottinger's cats takes three litters of kittens um, and and feed one one got fed raw milk one got fed um, homogenized milk and one got fed pasteurized milk and then they bred these kittens for generations and after several generations the most frightening video I've ever seen in my life 
the cats who are eating the raw milk are healthy and jumping around and full of vitality. And the other cats are literally, you get to the point where they're just, they're couch potatoes. They have absolutely no vitality, no intelligence, no energy. They're just listless. And I, I moved to Tennessee in 1999. And I've, so I've been there for 13 years. And what I've watched as the genetically modified food has increased steadily, um, you just see people's energy decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. Now, some of that's coming from the financial debasement and the debasement of their time, which is part of this currency game, but it's being compounded by the genetically modified food. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, what about the World Trade Organization and its uh, relationships, let's say the Doha round, et cetera, to the industrialization of the food supply? Right. To me, the, the most, the issue that I find the most concerning of any issue on the planet is the beginning using the GATT Accords, the General Agreement for Tariff and Trade, to create global rights to create intellectual property on seed and then to start to consolidate control of the seed supply and therefore the food supply. And that's what's referred to as the industrialization of agriculture. And I always use to help people understand this phenomenon, I always refer to Sir James Goldsmith's interview with Charlie Rosen in 1994. Sir James Goldsmith came to this country trying to lobby against the passage of the Uruguay Round of GATT and he gives a brilliant interview on the industrialization of agriculture. What we're watching globally, and it's it's absolutely a plan, top-down, being engineered top-down, to get global control of the seed and food supply. And part of the way they're doing it is with genetically modified organisms. Part of the way they're doing it is creating the infrastructure globally for um, for patents and the ability to patent life. This is very important and, and all sorts of different court cases to make it happen. Now, why is that happening? Um, I think one of the reasons it's happening, Bonnie, is if you see where we're going for the last 400 years, the Anglo-American Alliance has literally been the, the, dominant, um, the dominant manager of the planet and they've done it by controlling the trade in oil. And the reason the dollar is the reserve currency is because the, the American Navy controls the sea lanes globally, essentially, and now the satellites, and, and through that controls the trade in oil. And so the dollar, you know, if, if suddenly that were to stop tomorrow, if tomorrow the, the U.S. Navy were to disappear like this and the U.S. military were to disappear like this, you know, the dollar would be worth 5 to 10 cents on the dollar of what it's worth right now. Right, because you're saying that what gives a reserve, what makes a reserve currency and gives it its power is its tie to an asset. I right. mean, in this case, energy. Right. And, and it's tied to the ability to make countries take paper that we just make up and print in exchange for valuable natural resources. So I was just, as I was driving over to the studio today, somebody was saying, oh my word, you know, all these Japanese and Chinese interests have come up and 
and and they're just buying land all over the heartland. This is part of the money coming back in. And I said, well, yes, you know, for the last 10 years, we've just pumped them full of treasury securities as we bought cars or we bought toys or whatever. And, and they're trying to get rid of their dollars before Ben keeps debasing them. So they're coming over here trying to buy anything real that they possibly can. Um, so, yeah, so so we've had this relationship between oil and the dollar. Now, if you look at what's happening with technology, we're seeing more and more, you know, they call it breakthrough energy technologies, but breakthrough technologies, whether it's um, the technology that makes it much more possible and much more economic to keep you drilling for gas and fossil fuels, and we should talk about gas for a second, or it's the technology that makes solar, we're, we're watching dramatic improvements in the efficiency of solar. You know, and give it a couple more years, it's a little bit like the semiconductors. You're seeing the price come down, 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 down. And, you know, we're going into a world where solar can be unbelievably attractive. Um, and then we're also, you know, there's a whole world of inventors who keep insisting they can drive cars with water and, and uh, you know, and free energy and all these other things. So big question mark about what that's really about and what's possible in a, in a practical sense, particularly politically. But whatever all those things are collectively, you can see that the, that the dependency on oil is not sufficient to back a global currency, particularly, you know, if you're going to go to what they want, which is, I think, a digital global currency. So the question is, what could back it? Well, the only thing that could back it is food, seed and food. And if you can get control of the seed and food supply, then you can, you can have one global currency. Oh, I see where you're going with yeah. this reserve currency business. Well, that's a very scary thought. And yet, you're right. I mean, this is what they're doing. Well, and they've been doing it for years with okay. this genetic right. modification. So, so let me just suspend judgment for a second and just pretend that you're Mr. Global, okay? You're Mr. Global and your command, your control, because remember, you're part of a very small group of people. It's a big planet and there's just more and more people every day. So how in the world are you going to control and stay in charge and stay the leader of 7 billion people when there are only a few of you? Now, you've been using oil and you've been using the navies, but technology is changing things and that's not going to last. And trying to keep people from using this new breakthrough, you know, it's a lot of time and money to keep people from using the breakthrough, and you've got a lot of countries that are, you know, pushing to do it. So what's your plan? What are you going to do if you want to stay in control? You need, you need a replacement, right? If you're going to bring in new energy technology, well, what would you use? I don't know. I mean, I can see where you're going with this food business, but what I don't understand about the food thing is that would ultimately wipe everybody out, wouldn't it? In the long run? Well, but I mean, I can where, see the control angle, sure. Right. But given where technology is going, you don't need everybody. Well, that's true. Right. Yes, this whole thing with the food supply, this has been going on for a long time now. Right. Now, let me mention one very important dynamic. And I know you understand this because I tried to explain this to so many people and they didn't understand. So I said, you know, I need to write a case study. And I wrote a case study that's up on the internet. It's called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Oh, yes. That's a great, great – I've been reading that. Because what would happen in Washington is – and let's step down and let's look at a community. So let's say I live in a wonderful little community 50 years ago and there's $100 million of retail business, you know, food. There's a local dairy. There are farmers who sell food locally. 
all those kind of things. So let's say there's 100 million of sales, and on that 100 millions of sales, there's $10 million of net income. Okay, so it's operating at a 10% margin. And, and that 10 million of income and all those businesses have value. So let's say the 10 million of income on those businesses means our businesses are worth 50 to $80 million. So a multiple of 10 times, five to eight times earnings. If I'm a big box store, a publicly traded stock, and I'm trading, you know, when the market was high, let's say I was trading at a, a multiple of 20 times earnings. Mm -hmm. Instead of that being worth $50 million on a five times, I can make it worth $200 million. Okay? So if I move in and buy up the market and run everything through my publicly traded stock, instead of the local guys getting $50 million in equity, I can get $200 million in equity. Now, what's the number one source of political contributions? Wall Street? The bank? Capital gains. Oh, okay. Capital gains. So I'll give you an example, and I'll come back to the community. Let's say I have a, a company that does contracting for the government. Let's say I have a defense contract, and and you arrange for me to get a big contract, and my stock goes up by a multiple of, let's say, eight to ten times of the net profit from that contract. So if if you get me a contract that makes me another $10 million a year and my stock is trading at 10 times multiple, my stock will go up $100 million. Well, that's a capital gain that gives me the ability to pay you a very nice political contribution. Yes, that's right. So if I just give you 1% 1, 1 of what you've given me, I can, I can give you a million dollars in political contributions, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's how the, you know, the game works from capital gains. Now, what did they do back to the Uruguay round of GATT? They set up the conditions that would allow you to take the net income generated by millions and millions of small farmers and move it into the publicly traded stock market capitalization of a small number of corporations. Okay, yes. so it's a takeover of, of net income of market share. So let's go back to my example of the little community. I once said I, I wanted to write a, a, a comic book called How the Local Boys Got Rolled. Um, so, so let's say we have all these small farms and small businesses. They've got the net income of $10 million. So we have a big box store, and it can translate that net income into $200 million. Now, I've always said the greatest opportunity in America – was if we got together locally and created local venture funds and local REITs because we can get that $50 million up, not all the way to $200 million, but part of the way to $200 million, and do it in a way where the only way that capital can come in is to flow through our vehicles. And one of the things I want to talk about today is there's talk now of privatization at the state and local level next year. And the reality is if we let the money flow in in the old way, we're going to wreck places if we create the vehicles ourselves and say, look, you, your capital has to come in through the locally controlled vehicles, you know, then this could be pretty positive and interesting because you could shift back, okay? And because what you want to do is you want the small guy – right now, if, if I go into a community, all the small businesses are financing 401k and IRA plans – that channel money to the big companies to come in and take over their market. But you can reverse that. You can say, okay, we're going we're gonna to start 
engineering this so that the capital flows and builds us up locally. Step one, believe it or not, is not a financial action at all. You know what step one is? No, what? What's the number one investment of any county in America? The number one biggest investment in terms of total dollars. The raising and education education of our children. In other words, we're building intellectual capital and human capital. And when we finish investing and building up that capital, those kids go into the army They go to Wall Street or to work for the big corporations or they deal drugs and then they go to prison. They don't stay on Main Street to build up our businesses. And the first step is, in fact, to to create conditions where they can go to school locally, where they can get educated locally, and then they can apprentice and build up businesses and start their own businesses. Because now with things like 3D printing, we don't need to ship the manufacturing abroad. We can bring it home. But part of that is an entrepreneurial process of making it possible for the young people to, to create those businesses and stay in the businesses on Main Street. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What I found is that with a few exceptions, you're not allowed to talk about space. It's a no-no. <laughs> and when I find something's a no-no, when it's that big a no-no, there's something there. Mm-hmm. But generally, it, it's not been acceptable to talk about space. But if you look at how much money's been stolen, mm-hmm. I think there, there are several primary reasons. Mm-hmm. One, one is shifting money into the emerging markets. So we're rebalancing the global economy. That's number one. Number two, I think we're doing all sorts of very advanced weaponry that no one knows anything about. That's two. But I also think we're financing enormous amounts of space exploration. And uh, and it's one of the reasons they've now moved NASA to saying that space exploration will be privatized because what that now means is as we acquire assets and mining interests, they'll be owned by private corporations. The taxpayer yet again will pay but the assets will be owned and controlled privately. And in fact, the private acquisition of those space interests is probably going to be the greatest wealth producer over the next 25 years. So essentially through the fraud and the black budget, you financed the acquisition of enormous assets both in the emerging market and in space and the development of very advanced technologies, none of which is accruing to the taxpayer. And in fact, it is that space budget, which is probably the biggest, you know, sort of drain on this budget pretzel talk. The last thing to say about that is I think one of the, the, one of the final uses of the money is they're creating the equivalent of an endowment that will finance a global government. So if you move enough money into an endowment, then 5% of the interest on that endowment will replace the taxpayers in paying for the infrastructure of a global government that can be controlled by Mr. Global. So I think Mr. Global has, is literally financing the, you know, the leverage buyout of a government into a new government and is creating an endowment that can finance that government permanently. Now, Catherine, you're talking about what? Where the money went? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you're addressing where the money went, the the missing money, the trillions in, in, in whatever. Well, think of it this way, and you can read more about it in the Dylan Reed article, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, but since the end of World War II, we have seen a steady drain of money through the federal budget, through securities fraud. If you look at planet Earth, planet Earth is being run with a financial system, which is not a financial system. It's a harvesting system. And if you look at the harvesting that's gone down the black budget or monies that disappeared, we're talking about the kind of monies you need to engage in major space travel and exploration and, you know, all this fantastic kind of stuff. So we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. This is not money to give offshore accounts to partners at Goldman Sachs. This is something else. This is an alternative. This, we're financing an alternative government. So we've financed the creation of a parallel civilization on our own planet. Now, what makes you think that a lot of this uh, money that's been moved out is being put into uh, space exploration? Well, there, there are all sorts of indications that that's the case. Um, and uh, so, for example, I'll never forget, there's a very interesting documentary about a UFO that was sighted over Arizona, and the the subsequently the retired governor of Arizona admitted that yes it had it's, the documentary is called Phoenix Lights I don't know if you've ever seen it mm, I don't think so <clears throat> but an enormous UFO of some kind just literally floats down the interstate uh, along the side of and you had tens of thousands of citizens see it take pictures of it document it and one of them a doctor made this documentary which is very interesting. And I remember when I first saw the documentary and I suddenly saw the first picture of the spaceship and I said, you know, Lockheed Martin would charge $4 trillion to build that. <laughs> you know, my question to the UFOs is which, you know, how many of them came from Area 51? Because I think we've been building those. So, um, but you've also seen many, many indications that we're engaging in space travel, which is not you know, of the kind that's readily disclosed to the citizens. So, for example, Gary, Mc, uh, I think his name was Gary McKinnon, hacked into the DOD servers and discovered records of the U.S. Navy of, of space fleets operating in space. Now, um, there's, a, there's a huge war in extradition to get him back to the United States. And if you look at the, you look at the pressure that the U.S. put into that whole thing, it makes me believe that what he's saying he saw is probably what he saw. Now, if you look at the financial patterns, the financial patterns are absolutely compatible with those kinds of stories. Because if you talk about the money, the amount of money that's being drained off, it's on that scale. It's too much for Ferraris and offshore bank accounts. We're talking about major infrastructure building. And, and if you look at all the different things we've seen in terms of um, indications of what's going on in Mars or what's going on in the moon, I have to suspect that some of it is space travel. And the, the shift to privatize ownership of assets in space to me says, okay, there's something here. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because, because these issues have always been uh, verboten in many, many circles. You're not allowed to talk about free energy. You're not allowed to talk about suppressed healthcare technology. You're not allowed to talk about investment in space and space travel. That's sort of, you know, outside the lines of what is socially acceptable. However, if you study the black budget for many years, what, you, what you're always doing is you're always bumping into that doorway, the doorway that says, okay, there's all this money going into Area 51 and 
you know, flying saucers and people are seeing flying saucers over the world. You know, what is this about? Or, you know, all sorts of rumors about other kinds of weaponry that's very, very secret. So if you simply look at the money that I estimate is disappearing into the black budget, the question is, where is it going? And it certainly fits with all of the phenomena we're watching about interest in space and space investment and space travel. And so my feeling is before we get sucked into this game of the fiscal cliff and there's no money for healthcare and there's no money for social security, I want to talk about where's the money and P.S., who's going to own all the assets in space? Because the American people just spent tens of trillions of dollars to finance the space program and what's going on. My attitude is let's move that back on budget. So I want the conversation to come back into the socially acceptable area so that I can bring the money back and put it on the table and say, okay, I tell you what, if you're going to cut our social security, then we want to own all the assets that come from this space program or, you know, on and on and on. So I'm trying to move the conversation into the light so that I can move the money back on the table. I see what you're saying, but that's a tall order, isn't it? Well, you know, I have a, I have a, a, you know, it's funny. One of my favorite books when I was a little girl was Sherlock Holmes. And at one point, you know, Watson in the beginning is asking Sherlock why he has all this bizarre, weird knowledge. And he's explaining how he solves mysteries. And he says, you know, here's the thing. If you have, um, if you have proven, you know, all possibilities wrong except one which is unacceptable or unfathomable or too weird to believe, you know, you have to go there because that can solve the problem. And the reality is we have to, we have to shift our minds up and we have to shift them out. We have to be open because if you look at how knowledge has been suppressed, think about it. We live on a planet where we're not allowed to know how things work. Who's Mr. Global? How does he run things? Why does he behave the way? Why are we sitting here talking about this? This should all be known. Do you know what I mean? We should learn this in grade school. So to me, you know, if you look at the history that we've been taught to believe, if you look at the, the myths that we've been taught to believe, you know, we're living in Miceland. And we need to leave Miceland and look at things from Mr. Global's point of view, look at things from the universal divine's point of view and say, well, wait a minute, let's shift this whole thing out. Um, because I, one of my favorite videos I saw was a, of a former NASA employee says, you know, it's, it's my children and grandchildren's right and destiny to travel the stars. Don't you want that for the kids you love? Don't you want them to have that destiny? Well, let's open it up. Let's have that destiny for everybody. Now, Catherine, you wanted to discuss the three lies. Three lies. Three lies. Um, the first lie is collapse. You know, the, the whole world's going to collapse and we're, you know, we're going to have to live without, you know, well, you know, we have to go up into the woods and eat beans. And, and um, but there's a great number of people who believe that collapse is coming. And in fact, every year, uh, you know, they say it's going to collapse and I say, no, it's going to slow burn. And then it slow burns. And then the next year they say it's going to collapse. And I say it's going to slow burn. It's been like this, as you know, for over a decade where <laughs> it slow burns and slow burns. And part of it is if, if you look under the carpet at the collapse scenario, there is little understanding of what's keeping the slow burn going. So I just want to talk about a few things. Um, one of the things is that energy expense is going to put us under. 
you know, that we can't keep operating on the fossil fuel model. Okay. Since 2005, like it or not, there's been an explosion of gas and oil reserves in this country. So we now have more than enough natural gas to keep us going for 100 plus years, and we are now exporting natural gas, and we're building facilities to export liquefied natural gas because we have so much. Okay, so in fact, it hasn't gone to peak oil. The, the technology, the fossil fuel technology is now exploding the reserves in North America, and North America is remarkably energy self-sufficient. And, and that's before you include the things that are coming with solar and other renewable and energy technology. Now, why do I bring that up? What's the largest component in manufacturing? It's not labor, it's energy. Okay? So North American manufacturing is getting steadily more, um, more competitive. I just did a show on the Solaria Report with Jim Norman, who is to me is one of the most knowledgeable people about the oil industry. He's got a fabulous book called The Oil Card, and he'd be a wonderful guest for you. He pointed out that at the time we did the show, natural gas prices were lower. You paid $2 uh, you know, per unit for natural gas here. Europe was paying $7 and China was paying 15 So imagine if we have enough gas reserves for 100 years and we're unbelievably competitive. It's an incredible competitive advantage. And it's one of the things holding the dollar up right now um, other than the U.S. military. So that's number one. The second thing is, is so collapse is very tied to the second sort of lie, which is peak oil. Okay. Now, what is true is not is not so much peak oil, but peak cheap oil, because we've been concerned that the cost of, of getting the oil will skyrocket, and what this new technology is doing is bringing that down, okay? So peak oil is a, is a, I always tell people not to, I said, forget peak oil, it's peak everything. What is true is there are more and more people, and there's only so much land and water, Okay. The opportunity, though, is technology, because if you look at what's happening in the United States, um, the countries that are leaders in the technology of doing more with less are doing very, very well. And if you go to the areas in the country, so if you go to Seattle, if you come to Silicon Valley here in San Francisco, if you go to Austin, Texas, the places are booming because they're all in the business of figuring out how to do more and less, and that's the opportunity. The last thing is the United States is bankrupt. We're on a fiscal cliff. And, and one of the things that scares me, Bonnie, is that my fear is next year the propaganda on the United States is bankrupt will be very hot and heavy because if you can persuade people that the United States is bankrupt, then you can recut their deal and they'll go along with it, okay? And, and so one of the reasons I pound the pavement about the, you know, pretzel budget and all these other things, budget talk, is... I don't want people to fall for it. I want them to be able to look at the full picture of the budget and say, let's get all this money that Mr. Global has shifted out and let's move it back on budget. And let's put the whole financial ecosystem on budget. And, and I'm willing to look at the, at the ecosystem in my place and move that on budget. So don't believe it's bankrupt. There is a, there is a hole in the bucket. And as long as you have a hole in the bucket, the bucket will always be empty. And that's why I commend you for doing the series on Mr. Global because you're saying, you know, who is this guy who's got the hole in the bucket and what's he up to and, you know, where's the money going? Because before we can solve the budget problem, 
we have to ask and answer that question. Where's the money going? Right. And who's in charge? Because we know it's not Congress. We know it's not the president. I put a video up in my blog yesterday, and it's got Obama and Romney walking through all these different policies, and they're saying the same thing. They're just saying the same thing in policy after policy. It's like, you know, Mickey and Minnie. (laughs) And I call it, my nickname now is, you can vote for Goldman Sachs, Monsanto right, or Goldman Sachs, Monsanto left. (laughs) Anyway, so don't believe, don't believe the lies and let's get all the money moved back on budget. If we're going to cut the budget, let's, let's, let's put the whole pie on budget instead of a shrinking pie of the people who can't kill with impunity. And you're anticipating that after the November election that there will be a re-engineering of the budget. There has to be, right? There has to be. We've moved so many of the revenues off budget and so many of the liabilities and expenses on budget that you can't, you can't, I mean, the Federal Reserve in theory could just keep printing paper. But to keep this much paper afloat without hyperinflation is going to require much more war. Now, you have a few public events coming up while you're Uh here in California. What Uh are they? I have financial salons. They're going to be smaller and more intimate. So I'm going to be in Berkeley. It's September 27th uh, at the Bancroft Hotel from 6 to 9. Then we do Menlo Park September 29th. It's in the afternoon from 2 to 5. Then October 20th, we're up in Petaluma at the Sheraton, and then and that's going to be 2 to 5. And then we go to Santa Cruz on November 14th from 6 to 9. And if you come to Solari.com or my other website, CelaneAdvisory.com, you can find out all about them. Catherine Austin Fitz, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie, so much. I've been speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show has been Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 3. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dylan Reed & Company, Incorporated, Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, President of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Visit her website at www.solari.com. That's S-O-L-A-R-I dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo! And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed.
divided, we will fall Cause love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? You got